ETF Prime is hosted by investment advisors of the ETF store. This program is for informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice. Investing in ETFs involves risk, including potential loss of principal. Any past performance figures discussed are not necessarily indicative of future results. The ETF store is not affiliated with ETF.com or any of its affiliates. ETF.com's participation in this program should not be construed as an endorsement or an indication by ETF.com of the value of any ETF store product or service. Visit ETFstore.com for more information. Now it's time for ETF Prime, where we discuss everything you need to know about exchange-traded funds and the world of investing. Whether you're an investing expert or just starting out, Nate will help you get up to date with what's happening on Wall Street and show you how exchange-traded funds can help lower your investment costs, reduce your tax bill, and allow you to take advantage of investment opportunities around the world. And now, the host of ETF Prime, Nate Geraci. All right, great show this week. Joining me will be one of my favorite people to visit with on the financial markets, and that's Wisdom Tree's Jeremy Schwartz. He's global head of research there. Of course, Wisdom Tree is one of the larger ETF issuers, and currently their second most popular ETF is the Wisdom Tree Emerging Markets X State Owned Enterprises ETF, ticker XSOE. And this seeks to do exactly what it says. It invests in emerging markets, but it tries to minimize exposure to companies that have meaningful government ownership. And to me, even putting aside that specific strategy, emerging markets as a whole are a fascinating area right now because there's still a lot of talk about how attractive they are from a relative valuation perspective, yet performance has been mostly challenged over the past decade plus, especially compared to U.S. stocks. And you look right now, I mean, COVID is still causing some real issues in a number of these countries. And I just think it's unclear how quickly some of these economies might bounce back. I feel like China's always a bit of a wild card. So I'll have Jeremy lay out the case for emerging markets, and we'll go through XSOE in pretty good detail. I'll also be joined this week by Damien Basirier, who's managing partner and co-chief investment officer at Evoke Advisors, who's behind one of the most successful ETF launches over the past few years, and actually one of the most successful alternative ETFs ever. And that's the RPAR Risk Parity ETF, ticker RPAR. And I'm, I'm really looking forward to this as well. Damien's going to explain what a risk parity strategy is, its potential value, the risks, where it fits in a portfolio, and we'll, of course, go through that ETF uh, in quite a bit of detail as well. Now, to begin this week, I have ETF.com's Drew Voros on the line with me from California. Every once in a while, I like to just fire off random ETF questions and topics at Drew, and I think I have some pretty good ones to go through this week, so <laughs> let's do that now. Time now for our weekly chat with the experts at ETF.com the world's leading independent authority on ETFs. I think we're seeing a different way of ETFs being launched. The real kicker was governance, selling of private data. They really let down their customers repeatedly. Drew, thanks for uh, joining me this week. You ready for some rapid fire uh, questions? 
I am, Nate. Thank you. I'm ready for your ground balls. <laughs> I feel like my challenge is always keeping you reined in, right? I know once you get going on some of these topics, we could probably go for an entire segment, but we'll try to keep each of these to uh, a few minutes or so. I'll edit myself. All right, so let's start with a topic that I, I do feel like has been flying under the radar a bit, and that's the top-performing ETF this year. And you, you look at the numbers, this isn't even close. The Breakwave Dry Bulk Shipping ETF, ticker symbol B-Dry, this thing is up 258% as of yesterday. The next closest is the Microsector's U.S. Big Oil Index 3 times leveraged ETN. That's it, 174%. And if you exclude leverage and inverse products, the next closest ETF performance-wise to a B-Dry is the First Trust Natural Gas ETF at, listen to this, 61%. So 258% versus 61%. Uh, give me your hot take on this one. Do you, do you agree it's not getting as much attention as you might expect? Uh, it's an anomaly. I, I think it's very interesting. Uh, I mean, if you look at the 12-month, it's even more impressive. Uh, it's over 400%. It was trading... Uh, Approximately this date a year ago at $4.60. Now it's at $25. Uh, probably the classic reopening trade. Um, obviously, uh, hindsight's 2020, uh, but a year ago, things were looking pretty dire. Um, we literally had cargo container ships. We had dry bulk ships sitting in the ocean that couldn't even go into port because of health restrictions. Um, so it was a very low point, obviously, um, and it's been a huge snapback. Um, particularly the, over the last six months or so, has really uh, climbed because we've seen freight prices just skyrocket because uh, demand has hit the dry bulk area. Dry bulk is different than container ships that you see uh, that you know cars and food come in. Dry bulk is literally iron ore, um, soybeans, corn that is literally shipped in a uh, different types of cargo containers uh, throughout the world, and is also one of the keys uh, in terms of uh, commodity. Uh, demand indicators. Uh, a lot of iron ore comes from Australia and goes to China. Uh, and once that starts kicking in, and we've seen this huge upcycle now in commodities all over the board from ag uh, to to metals uh, to iron ore. Uh, so dry bulk shipping is in huge demand right now. And it, when demand goes up, uh, it's surge pricing, uh, classic surge pricing. Um, freighters uh, will charge more as demand goes up. And right now we're just seeing incredible demand uh, for shipping compared to a year ago. And thus, we're seeing this incredible return. A couple things, a couple caveats. Uh, it is very expensive. It's over 3% expense ratio. It has a uh, spread of over 50 basis points. So you're looking at three and a half, four, 400 basis points just to get a profit. Uh, when you're making 200, 400% over the year, sure, who cares? Uh, but just for perspective, since its inception, it's flat. Uh, barely has broken even, uh, maybe at 1% over the last three years. So it's a very volatile industry, very supply and demand, price surging. Uh, so what's happening today is not going to be what's happening in a year from now. I think you absolutely hit the nail on the head with, with everything you said there. I mean, clearly the CTF is part of the global economic reopening trade and, you know, perhaps a pretty pure one because dry bulk shipping, to, to your point, does tend to do really well in commodity upcycles. And you think about what's going on with lumber right now and, and other commodities, everything's booming. So this clearly stands to benefit. One, one other thing I'll add before we move on here, this ETF launched in March of 2018 and it literally sat there with like, Two million in assets. Basically, it's seed money. It sat with that until February or March of last year. And, 
you know, started get, getting a little bit of, uh, of traction, but even at the beginning of this year, it was only around 25 mil, and it's now well over 100 million. I think it, you know, another example of an ETF that, that sort of waited patiently and now may be having its moment in the sun. It's hard to do. You know, I, I like to say um, some issuers leave the movie early. Uh, you know, we saw it with the airlines ETF. Uh, we've seen it with the auto industry ETF. And, and there's times when those just hit. It's the uh, blind squirrel finding a nut, if you will. Uh, but when they hit, they can stick around. So, you know, there is some, uh, you know, credit to, to you know, persevering. Uh, it's expensive. But if you can last, sometimes that, that the, the ball strikes a bat and uh, they hit a home run this year. All right. Anytime the topic of B-Dry comes up, I can't help but talk about Bitcoin ETFs. Though I, I guess actually I can't help but talk about Bitcoin ETFs anytime, right? But I, I'm right. not sure if you remember back in... I actually, I think it was like 2018, Van Eck used B-Dry in their presentation at the SEC on why a Bitcoin ETF should exist. So they were basically saying Bitcoin was a deeper market than freight futures. It was every bit as transparent. And so if B-Dry existed, then so should a Bitcoin ETF, which I, I agree with that, by the way. But the question I have for you is the uh, new SEC chairman, Gary Gensler, he testified before the House Committee on Financial Services last week. And then he was on uh, CNBC on Friday. And I've got to tell you, after hearing his comments, I, I, I guess I'll say I, I think I've lost a lot of optimism on a Bitcoin ETF being approved this year. And let, let me read a few of his quotes on Bitcoin. I, I tweeted these out, too. He said, quote, we need greater investor protection there. He said, quote, we don't have a federal regime overseeing the crypto exchanges. Uh, he also said, quote, there's a gap in our system to protect investors. I mean, that does not sound like a commissioner ready to approve a Bitcoin ETF. Well, a couple things. Um, if you're trying to read the tea leaves of regulators during congressional testimonies, you might as well try reading hydrogl hydroglyphics. Um, they're not going to show their hand. Um, and and I, I'm still feeling pretty good about Q1 2022, which was my original set date, although I, I, I was thinking about hedging uh, lately. But I, I think it's still pretty strong. Um, and, and the other thing, too, there's some key players that, that you would expect to be in the front of the line if this thing was pending. I, I still will point at Bitwise um, that has yet to refile. By the way, they're launching their first ETF today on a, sort of a blockchain uh, similar to BLOK. Uh, so they're in the ETF game now, um, which actually might help them. But um, And also, um, there's a company, in fact, we just uh, saw it today, Kathy Woods joining the board of directors of Anum and 21 Shares, which mm. is a European exchange-traded product issuer, um, has uh, several ETP products in the crypto space in Switzerland, elsewhere, and they're coming to America. They're, they're going to try to file a Bitcoin uh, ETF here in the U.S. So I think there's some major players that, that don't seem rushed, um, and I think that's something to keep an eye on. Vanek is just the straw man here. Uh, just because they got first in the line to refile, that doesn't make them first to be considered. Um, and as I've been told from some inside sources, there's some real structural problems still with the existing uh, uh, applications that are out there that haven't addressed the major concerns of the SEC. And again, I'll, I'll wait to see some other filings come in. Uh, but I think things are going to speed up a little bit. I think once Gensler gets in there and gets his hands and feet wet to what's really happening, uh, I think he's going in cautiously. And I think that's been the attitude of the SEC. Uh, and I think we're going to be surprised at how quick uh, their tune will change.
No, I, I hope you're right. I mean, you mentioned them being cautious. The fact is they've been cautious for eight years now, right? I mean, the first Bitcoin ETF filing back in, in 2013. But I'll, I'll just say I'm standing by my prediction of 2021. It's just seeing his comments last week. It, for me, it was tough to, to feel optimistic. But maybe, you, you know, he's just throwing uh, the, throwing you know everybody off the uh, off the trail a little bit and uh, giving himself some space and you know, maybe here later this year, we'll, we'll see some progress. Um, I mean, think about it. If he walked in the door and said, look, I, Bitcoin's been way overdue, <clears throat> it wouldn't seem like there's a lot of regulatory diligence going on. So I, I think he's got to come across that way. Um, like I said, I, I think time will tell. I think by September, October, uh, if we had, we're, we're going to see some action during the summer. But I, I, I still think that I wouldn't try to read too much into a new SEC chairman's initial comments to Congress, whether that's going to dictate the future of Bitcoin or not. Drew, you mentioned Kathy Wood. So another hot topic right now, and it's certainly one we've covered plenty, uh, though, though it's always an interesting topic, and that's ARK Invest. So if you look, the ARK Innovation ETF, ARKK, that's now down nearly 40% from its high in February. Uh, it was down 10% just last week. It's It's been a challenging last two days as well. And I'm already seeing the Kathy Wood and, and, and ARK haters taking victory laps. Though we, I feel like we should mention ARKK is still up over 70% over the past year. I, I think that's important. But I saw a stat yeah. from a well. I was going to say I saw a stat from Ritholtz's Michael Batnick. This was uh, last Friday, and the, the stat was that retail investors have put money into this thing for 109 of the last 110 days. And, and so the question I, I want to ask you is: Do you think this continues? Like, do you think this hot retail money will stay invested even though we've had this 40 percent drawdown? I think people are trying to write the last act to Kathy Wood very prematurely. Uh, I think we're in the third, fourth inning of this ball game. I mean, do people really think that ARC uh, ETFs are going to go over 100% every single year? I mean, the naivety out there is kind of uh, striking. Um, so we're, we're obviously in a revision of the mean, whether that's be it's not because of her, it's because of the space she's in. We're seeing it with the queues. Yesterday, we're one of the biggest declines in the queues we've seen in the last year or so. So it's going across the board, and the tide is taking her with her. Um, Time will tell. You know, are, are investors in this to make money quickly or are they in this to make money over the long term with a long horizon? Um, I always look back when I when I see these, you know, last year she was celebrated as the greatest thing in the world. And this year it's like, see, I knew this was going to happen. I mean, we love to build these up and we love to tear them down. And I always look at Amazon um, back in the day, way back in the day. I'm, I'm talking 20 years ago when people were hand-wringing over, you know, uh, would Amazon get to $20? You know, and it was up 10 percent over the last year. Now it's over 50. I mean, it really depends on your horizon. And, and if you're in it to make 100 percent over the next year, you know, if you make money quickly, you can lose money quickly. I don't think that's her game plan. I think she's got a long uh, horizon. And if people are looking to make, you know, 70, 80, 90 percent on a fund, they're just getting themselves. Um, let's see how it goes over the next two years. Um, before you write her obituary. Yeah, I think the key here is the investor's time horizon, because I saw in Barron's last uh, week, they reported that That's over... What I meant, yeah. Yeah, 50% of the money in ARKK is now underwater. Just because if you look at when the bulk of flows came into the CTF, it was over the past nine months, and the CTF now has a negative return since the end of November. So a lot of that new money uh, hasn't fared well. And so... To your point, if an investor was coming in hoping to just hit an immediate home run and instead they're negative while the broader market is up, you, you just wonder how much conviction they'll have to stay invested. 
Well, and that and time will tell. But but again, I mean, uh, you know, the new money's underwater for a month. I mean, my my gosh, come on, this is investing. This isn't, you know, a, a Ponzi scheme where you're going to get a return every month. Um, so I mean, investors have to open their eyes and look at what the why are they in it? How long do they want to be in it for? If you don't have the guts to hang out through some declines, you know, go get into bonds. All right, a few minutes left. I want to go to a, a couple of ETFs that are performing really well this year. And these are actually ones we haven't talked about before. The iShares Global Timber and Forestry ETF, ticker WOOD, and the uh, Invesco MSCI Global Timber ETF, ticker CUT, both <laughs> great ticker symbols. And, of course, I think everyone's heard about the skyrocketing price of uh, lumber. And these two ETFs are sort of a, a roundabout way to, to play this. So I looked at performance. Both of these are up over 20% on the year, up 80%, 90% over the past year. A- any thoughts on what's going on with these? Well, I mean, there's obviously a big story going on in the lumber market. Um, and again, talk about reopening trade. I mean, uh, home builders are outperforming the lumber market. I mean, that, that's, what, that's how crazy it is. Um, so the demand is obviously there, um, just, just like we were talking about with B-Dry. Um, wooden cut are, are basically large cap funds, um, certainly have a, a tilt toward um, certain parts of not just lumber, but just the paper industry. I think Weyerhaeuser um, and some paper companies are, are some of the top constituents. Um, but it has been outperforming SPY. Um, I think it's up, both are up about 20% uh, versus SPY. They're very similar. I don't think there's a whole lot of difference in terms of performance. Uh, again, I would caution against getting caught up in headlines, trying to match a headline with a specific, very niche um, ETF. Um, Again, you're trying to make money too late again. The lumber market's flying high, and at some point, as we know with commodities, price will slow demand. Um, so we'll see. I, I think the lumber whole thing is a little bit, again, part of a whole big story about commodities, the reopening, the demand for materials, and this is part of it. Um, are you? Would you jump? Would I jump in and out of wood and cut? No. If you again, if you want to believe in that, and you think you can get a little bit more return, you can. But overall, it's really a large cap fund outperforms, underperforms SPY by a few points uh, historically. Nothing to get too excited about. Um, I think the iShares fund has $400 million, uh, and the other one has $100 million. So niche products, interesting. Certainly, again, fun in the ETF world to have all these different kind of funky ETFs. But again, nothing to um, start, in my opinion, reconsider buying them. I do find the underlying story here with lumber to be pretty interesting. So, you know, effectively, and you, you were alluding to this, what happened was, there's a huge mismatch in supply and demand because these sawmills, they ramped down production last year once the pandemic began setting in. And then you look since that time, we've had this housing boom, right, and people doing all sorts of home improvement projects. And I think another factor here, too, were uh, curbs that were put in place by the Canadian government just in terms of the trees that could be cut down because Canadian timber is used for a lot of U.S. home building. And so you, you sort of add all these factors up, and that's why lumber's up something like 300% since before the pandemic. I, I do think it's an interesting story, but I, you know, I always agree with your sentiment in trying to sort of match an ETF to the headlines. you got to be careful there. One thing I will point out, though, that um, I mean, we're just talking about inflation over and over again. Um, we're seeing these inc- incredible increases in, in you know shipping costs, incredible uh, rates in, in lumber. That's all going to be passed along to the to the customer and to the consumer. Um, so one of the things that's interesting that I don't really see people talking about is really pointing to this that we're seeing all these little weird niches of 
lumber and freight that are just exploding in prices, you know, where is that going to end up? It's going not going to end up in um, the you know, it's going to end up in the consumer's pocketbook, and they're going to have to pay for it at the end. So I'd really be cautious about a lot of what we're talking about here. It isn't just an investment play, but down the road, there's going to be some economic consequences to these higher commodity prices. All right, Drew, time for one last hot take. You have about a minute here. Let me ask you about right. ETF flows. So through April, more money has come into stock ETFs than did mm-hmm. all of last year, which, which, by the way, you look, mm-hmm. 2020 was a record year for ETFs. It wasn't like that was some slouch of a year. Now, it was definitely heavier on, uh, on bond ETFs, but still, uh, what do you think about ETF flow so far in 2021? Well, this has been monster, right? I mean, we could we – could, I don't think we'll get – I think we'll get around $400 million plus. But, I mean, we're looking at almost a half a trillion dollars in the first half of the year. Um, we're already um, topping, I think, most of the years except maybe three or four. Uh, we're sitting at about $340 million for the year so far. Uh, and it's just been this incredible appetite for equity ETFs, um, despite being at all-time highs, despite some of the – the different glitches and uh, glitches that we've seen um, that markets typically uh, encounter. But as you said, I mean, the, the last year was fixed income all the way. This year, it's all equity. Um, and, and frankly, fixed income's having a decent year as well. I mean, the $60 billion is nothing to sneeze at in six months either in U.S. fixed income when you have higher uh, rates all across the board and a very difficult market to navigate. Um, I, I think what's what we're going to uh, experience at some point, you'd think, is a slowdown. But what typically happens, as we've seen over the years with ETF flows, flows actually get stronger as the year goes on. Um, so that's what's going to be really interesting. In fact, the strongest uh, uh, quarters, fourth quarter, typically, there's rebalancing going on. There's people trying to set up from last year, trying to take losses. So we haven't even gotten into um, sort of the rebalanced flows that we're going to start seeing toward the end of the year. Um, so I don't think we're going to hit a trillion. I wouldn't bet money on that, but it's going to be pretty darn close. Well, Drew, very well done on the uh, the rapid fire questions. Fun stuff as always. Thank you for joining me. Thank you for having me, Nate. That was ETF.com's Drew Voros. My next guest is Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree, who currently offers 68 ETFs in the U.S., about $45 billion invested. And I would say there are few better to discuss the global financial markets than Jeremy, who is now on the line with me from Philadelphia. Jeremy, always great connecting. Thanks for taking the time. Nate, it's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for having us. Well, first, how's everything been going uh, over at Wisdom Tree? I know you have a Bitcoin ETF filing, which we're not going to discuss this week. Hopefully we can at some point later this year, but you have that. I saw your change in the name on the 9060 U.S. Balance Fund to the U.S. Efficient Core Fund. That's ticker NTSX, which interesting there is that ETF has grown to about 500 million in assets. It's really been a, a nice success story. You launched the cybersecurity ETF earlier this year. You have the cloud computing ETF, which has done really well. Uh, a China X state-owned enterprises ETF. Just give us a, a quick update on everything going on at Wisdom Tree. 
That's like a greatest hits of wisdom tree right there, <laughs> Nate. I love it. Uh, you know, I think for people who are interested, I mean, certainly we can't talk about fund and filing, but the, you know, we have been writing about digital assets from a pure education perspective, sharing a lot in common with you on trying to educate on the space. And you know, so if you go to you know our blog, wisdomtree.com, you'll see we've been writing about digital assets more and more, trying to talk about what we think about Bitcoin generally, what are the use cases, why think about it, um, and and you know in- increasingly on Ether as well. Um, I think you know my personal view is is you think about Bitcoin as and you had Stan Druckenmiller talking about the Fed today on CNBC and an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal talking about what he thinks are insane policies from the Fed, um, sort of blowing asset bubbles. And Bitcoin has become the new generation's digital gold. In a lot of ways, that's the narrative that has resonated. And we see that being this value asset in sort of fixed supply um, in a, in a money-printing world is, is one of the things that's resonating. And Ether is like the technology for creativity, and it's only limited by the developers operating that ecosystem. So we're excited about digital assets. We're doing a lot in the space. We talked about um, our investment into currency, which we are a large minority investor in, and, and all the things that we're planning to do in the tokenization world with the currencies, uh, infrastructure, and technology. So I, I definitely encourage people to, to, to go look, learn more about what we're planning there. Um, in, in terms of other things, you know, the efficient core you mentioned, uh, we are excited. We're planning to expand more in that family. Um, you know, product development, we had, I, I think one of our themes for the last few years was divest to reinvest, and we closed a number of funds, we got leaner, and we're sort of reinvesting those those uh, savings now and, and, and planning more aggressive expansion. And, you know, so the Fishing Core family is one that's resonated as an anchor to portfolios. We're, like, unique in the market today. No one else is doing this really in, in ETFs today, which is, which is not easy to find, that white space. Um, and, but it's sort of combining equities and bonds in a diversified portfolio with bond futures on top of equities. We, and, and we're planning to do that for international and emerging markets quite soon uh, to follow up on, on the U.S. But we see that, you know, being a nice anchor to portfolios. Um, and, and as you said, thematics are one of the reasons ETFs were built for. I mean, ETFs were built to get unique baskets together, and we've got really interesting partners with Bessemer Venture Partners on the cloud computing, which globally has raised close to $2 billion um, with the U.S. and Europe uh, launching together in, in September of, of 2019. And we've had a lot of success. I hope to build on that success in the future. Um, and, and you see us doing other interesting partners like Team 8 with Cyber, um, and you had the Colonial Gas Pipeline. You're seeing gas shortages. I don't know if you, if you saw these stories on North Carolina, people running out of gas um, from this, this cyber breach in the Colonial Pipeline. And I think that's one where you should stay very closely tuned to our content channels. We're going to bring some unique insights on what's happening with these cyber breaches and, and what are the companies that can help protect what are these companies doing. Um, it's a very limited basket. We think that's going to also expand in the future, but cyber is is a really interesting part of it, but also just generally of our thematics. Um, we think there's going to be more to do with cutting-edge partners for these technology themes. Jeremy, you mentioned product development, and as I look back on the launches from Wisdom Tree, you know, over the past several years, you've been very meticulous in launching new products. I show only 10 new ETFs over the past four years, which really isn't a lot for an issuer of your size. Can you talk just a little bit more about Wisdom Tree's approach to, to, to product development and, and new ETFs? Sure. 
I mean, we, you know, we started off, you know, 15, this is going to be our 15-year anniversary. I mean, it's hard to believe, you know, and I, I've been there from the very beginning to see how we developed. And we were the first firm to do what we called affiliated indexing, self-indexing. You'd have most firms go to, you know, uh, and iShares and Vanguard would go to, to MSCI and S&P and Russell, and we had developed our own proprietary indexes. And and we were the first to do that. We helped set the roadmap and, and got through the SEC for what do the affiliate indexing rules look like. You know, increasingly, we've gone, you know, now you have the ability to do active ETFs. You even have the ability to do index committee-based ETFs. And one of the things when we first had the affiliated indexing relief, we couldn't have an index committee. We actually now are about to launch our first index committee approach um, in, in the biology space, biology revolution space. And, you know, I think it's, it's just another way of doing active in some ways. I mean, you have more flexibility with the committee. And, you know, it's, it's, it's you know, I think part of, we have as, as you know, I think a, a, a capabilities across the asset class spectrum from equities, bonds, alternatives. We repurposed a commodity fund this year, which is doing incredibly well. It's sort of more diversified exposure with an active approach to commodities, doing something similar and managed futures. Um, and so, you know, I think you always try to find unique areas, unique insights on the market. Um, and, but increasingly, I'd say we're, we're going towards um, and, and bringing in other partners where they had very unique insights on the market. I, we talked about the cloud computing and the Bessemer Venture Partners, where they're traditionally a venture capital firm, but they you know, created an index to track this very particular segment of the cloud computing space. And th- there was competition in the market, but we thought their insights combined with you know, a very unique portfolio, even though it was not the first to market, it was very differentiated from the market. And you know, so that combination where you could provide great education, great to- content, a diversified approach, that's always going to be our mantra is you can't be just me too. You have to add something valuable on top of the market. And whether it's index, index committee, active, it, you know, for each fund, you're going to choose the right mix of things that, that lets you accomplish those goals. Okay, so that's the perfect segue, because when you talk about unique insights on the markets and taking a differentiated approach, we're going to focus this week on one of Wisdom Tree's largest ETFs. It's also one that I feel like is really resonating with investors, because you, you look, this thing has grown from about $1 billion in assets to nearly $5 billion just over the past year, and that's the Wisdom Tree Emerging Markets Ex-State-Owned Enterprises ETF, ticker symbol XSOE. Uh, Walk through the basic idea behind this ETF. What's the overall investment goal? And then I have several other areas we can delve into. Yeah, it's sort of like you get this overnight success, right? It's just one, you know, overnight <laughs> it turns into massive success. But no, it's been years in the making, six, seven years. But it also shows you how difficult it is. I mean, you create a new idea, and this we created back in 2014, I want to say, and it sat at $2 million for years. Um, you know, and we had a point in our history where half of Wisdom Tree's assets were emerging markets assets, where we had a high dividend value fund DEM. We had a, and, and we still have the world's largest emerging market small cap value fund DGS. And so we had a lot of value tilts on the market, and 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 people were looking at those portfolios. We'd be talking to clients, and one of those really smart institutional investors we were meeting with, a Texas pension fund. Um, we've we've done some podcasts on this, but made a comment on. If you look at your top holdings, eight of the top ten holdings are either Chinese banks or Russian energy companies, Brazilian energy companies, materials companies. Have you thought about the influence of the state on these companies? 
and you know what happens if you remove them and that asking that question set us down this this rabbit hole of looking for like well how can you identify these companies are there any databases there were not any databases to identify them and you know you can look at the top 10 and know who they are but if you really did it in a cohesive way and so we our team set out to do the research identify create you know what we think is the best database of companies who were were state owned and then we started looking at well, what happens when you remove them. And there was a consistent theme that it tended to be banks and energy are the two dominating sectors that are state-owned. It's not tech and healthcare and consumer. Um, and so then you, you start going to portfolio construction. You're saying, all right, what are the tilts that are going to happen once you remove these? Well, at first, when we launched in 2014, you'd be out of China. Like, you'd be very, very underweight China. And that wasn't you know, the intention. We think China could be one of the, the leading growth stories, particularly for their tech companies. And that has played out exactly as we thought. Um, so we wanted to be market weight China um, and, and not make these big country bets, but allow the state ownership factor to have its, have its work. Um, you know, and so when we launched in, in the market, the, the state-owned companies were about 30% of the entire MSCI index. And, and, it is, and, and for the leading China ETF, it was 75 to 80% of the leading China ETF in the market when we launched. And, and you know, that's gravitated over time just because how poorly state companies have performed for the last seven years and how great the non-state companies have performed. So they've been gaining shares down to about 20% for the total market today. Um, but I think, you know, my view is, and, and there's times when value will rot- rotate. Like right now, the last three months, value is having a very strong comeback. And so the value funds are doing incredibly well. But if you say, I want ownership to EM for 10 years, who, why are you buying EM? It's because of their long-term growth prospects, demographics. You want those technology and consumer trends. And so a, a core fund that doesn't have big bets away from countries or massive, you know, best on sectors, you're sort of slightly tilting the core to these factors that I think will deliver that long-term growth. That was the, the core story. Um, it's resonating. And, and, and further, you know, the ESG drive you're seeing in portfolios, we've added additional ESG characteristics to enable it. It's won some ESG ETF of the year awards in the past. And we think that trend is also helping find some new places for this portfolio. Last I checked, this held stocks from, I believe, 18 emerging market countries. Does that sound correct? Yeah, I mean, we, we try to be similar to MSCI's index. Um, you know, there's going to be some at the margin where they're very, very small weights, and we didn't find it critical to this story or, or that they weren't maybe we even disagreed with MSCI's inclusion. But, you know, the major countries were benchmarking ourselves to MSCI. So, you know, as a starting point, you'll see our weights largely be similar to that, to that broad index. What exactly constitutes a state-owned enterprise? Like, what's the specific criteria? Right. You know, this is this is that sort of question where there is, you know, quote unquote arbitrary, like what is the number you say where the government influences or not? Um, we defined it as 20 percent ownership, but there's some other people who looked at it, put it 50 percent. We thought we were being more um, conservative in a way, saying that if they own as much as 20 percent, they, they, they still have, you know, some influence on the companies. I think the, the, the first impression when you look at it, we've caught all the big ones that you would think of and know. And then the question is, below the line, are there companies that the government is influencing that you don't know? Um, and But I, I think as a, as a very macro picture, the you know I think I look at the, the Chinese banks as like symbolic of the state ownership. And when you think about, well, why, why is removing them important? Well, you know, during this pandemic, 
you know, the, the, the basically the banks were being called upon to do national service and extend loans to all these state-oriented companies. And that's just common practice in China, that the state banks have to do this national service. And so the question is, it's not that they're running these banks just for the interest of shareholders. It's not like a, you know, and I could argue, did, did we try to nationalize City and Bank of America and all these other companies during our financial crisis in 09? But that's a whole other issue. There's still more separate there's truly way more separation um and and you'd say we're not we didn't really nationalize it but they are fully entities of the state and they're doing things beyond just the the profit maximization of shareholders in these banks um in china and so i think that's one of the key the key places but and so we define 20 percent as the magnitude now you could question is really any company in china beyond the state influence and that's a reasonable approach to take um but you know we do think that the tilts that we get in ours are, are symbolic with that 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 bigger trend of really the banks the energy companies those are more like the state influenced and sure the tech and others are are more in the spirit of the, the private enterprise you were mentioning earlier how there was no uh, database out there to really identify the full list of companies that have state ownership can you talk more about that like how much of a challenge is it to figure out which companies do have state ownership and and how readily available is that data well, it can't give away all our secrets, but we, <laughs> we uh, no, you had to assemble it. I mean, you have to basically go company by company. You have a team of analysts. Obviously, you're going to pull information from the publicly available sources that you can find, and it's, it's, a, it's a lot of different sources, from primary sources looking at individual company reports to databases that you have access to that talk about ownership holdings, cross-checking who are the state organizations that you believe um, if they show up on the list that they are part of the state, it's, it's not like there's just one answer of where you find that information. So we do, you know, maintain that database and, and update it every year. Um, and and uh, but it, you know, so that it's not just like you can go to one place and, and get that that piece of data. You were alluding to this earlier, but I I really want to try to crystallize this for listeners. If we were to take some of the most popular broad-based emerging market ETFs that are out there that, say, track the MSCI Emerging Markets Index or, or something yeah. like that, what is the underlying difference in composition? Like, how, how much of the MSCI Index is typically in state-owned enterprises? Uh, you know, just talk about some of the other major differences, sector composition. I just, I, I really want to hammer this home. And this is a great place to also emphasize what we do on our WisdomTree website. If you go to wisdomtree.com and there's a tool section, there's what's called index attribution. And we have a tab on index attribution that lets you actually pull down for state ownership attribution. And, you know, what you can do is you'll, you'll find, you know, since we launched, the SOE section of the MSCI index has averaged o- right around 25% of the MSCI index since we launched. Today, if you go last one year, it's down to 20%. So it's still 20% of a broad MSCI index that's still in state-owned companies. And, and that, that, that tool will let you see, you know, what's the average performance over different periods. I mean, I just clicked on it for three years. The non-state-owned companies in MSCI have returned 9% a year. The state-owned companies have returned zero. So I mean that, and that's average twenty three percent of the MSCI index has returned zero when the seventy seven percent has returned nine. I mean, the, the, you could see that's the influence that removing them has helped you avoid that zero, and and, and actually we've even had some some stock and benefits on top of the nine. 
Um, but it's, you know, that tool will let you see the tail tree. We show it to you for really um, other indexes. If you want to look in China, you could get a sense of how much of it in China is, in India. Um, it's really China's the big one, but, you know, there obviously are in, in other markets. And eventually we'll get this tool to be able to look at on, on a fund-by-fund basis as well. But for now, you could definitely see it on, on the index level there. Jeremy, just a, a few minutes left. I want to make sure we touch on the overall case for emerging markets. And from my perspective, I mean, you look right now, there are a lot of uh, terrible headlines coming out of India as it pertains to, to, to COVID, Latin America. Should that be a concern for investors? Because I've heard the case made that since the U.S. is, is pretty effectively deploying the vaccine right now, even though U.S. stocks might be on the higher end valuation-wise, right, and, and just from a relative perspective, emerging market stocks might be more attractive overall, a number of these emerging market countries are still in the throes of the pandemic. And so I think the thought is maybe the U.S. is still better positioned to continue outperforming, even though, again, that's been the case for the past decade plus. Any thoughts on that and, and, and any other uh, potential positive drivers you might touch on for emerging markets? Well, you know, India is, is certainly the, the poster child today of the pandemic running wild. I mean, on the other side of the coin is Taiwan, where they managed it incredibly well and had almost really no COVID. I mean, it's unbelievable the difference in Taiwan versus the rest of the world um, and, and in the U.S. and in India now. Um, I think one of the lessons we learned from the U.S. was so there was a huge drawdown in March as the, the pandemic on you know came on, and then from the combined response everywhere, um, the markets rebounded very, very sharply. So like the panic selling that occurred with COVID here, people haven't really panic sold India, even though that the virus is raging because, well, number one, I think one of the things we learned was the pit, you know, the virus impacted old people way more than young people in India, really young population. So, you know, I think in, in some ways there's this view that they can manage um, and that they'll catch up, they'll get the vaccines eventually and, and get that under control, while also knowing that the markets are forward-looking and even if they had a terrible one year for the economy and for profits, that, that they'll rebound sharply over time and still have one of the world's you know, bad, better demographic growth profiles uh, over time. Um, so I think there's two sides to that. I, I think the, the, quick, the quick story is that EM does look cheaper versus U.S., and, and the, the overall growth profile is high. I, I often say, you know, one of the reasons why the U.S. outperformed has been our sector mix. A lot of international is value-tilted, and the U.S. is this tech-growthy basket. And if you say, who can actually compete with the U.S. tech giants? There's only one country who can, and that is China's tech giants. And, and that's where I think, whether it's CXSE, which is the China ex-state-owned enterprises, or the broader one, the, the XSOE, which has the tilt to all those companies, uh, you know, th- that they are growing faster than the U.S. tech companies um, and arguably have the data to continue to keep some of that edge. And, uh, and so I think they, they can rival the U.S. even for that tech dominance there. So I think that's that's one thing to, to sort of counter that narrative there. Well, and I think you could add to that just the rise of the Chinese consumer overall, uh, I, I think, could play a you know key role in, in terms of uh, – you know, providing some some fuel to that fire. But Jeremy, we're going to have to leave it there. Always enjoy connecting. Uh, excellent perspective this week. Thank you. Thanks, Nate. That was Jeremy Schwartz, Global Head of Research at Wisdom Tree.
My last guest this week, certainly not least, is Damien Basirier, Managing Partner and Co-Chief Investment Officer at Evoke Advisors, who's behind the RPAR Risk Parity ETF, ticker symbol RPAR. This is one of the most successful ETF launches over the past couple of years. So it launched in December of 2019, already well over a billion dollars in assets, one of the largest liquid alternative ETFs out there. And Damien is now on the line with me from Los Angeles. Damien, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Happy to be here. Okay, so before we get to the ETF itself, I thought a good place to start would be on some basics around what a risk parity strategy is. Because I feel like a lot of investors, they've heard about this, uh, this strategy, but I'm not sure everyone fully understands exactly what this is. So how do you like to describe risk parity? There are couple fundamental concepts that underlie risk parity. One is that asset classes should give you a positive return in excess of cash for taking risk. Um, people refer to that as the risk premium. And there are many different uh, assets uh, where you can harvest that risk premium, stocks, bonds, uh, different types of uh, inflation hedges, real estate, etc. And, and so risk parity relies on that fundamental idea that you can get compensated, not just in equities, but actually across the gamut of different uh, asset classes. The second idea that underlies risk parity is that you don't have to accept assets as they come prepackaged in terms of their return and risk. Many people think of bonds as a low risk, low return asset class, equities as a high risk, high return asset class, but you can actually utilize leverage or leverage-like techniques. Uh, for instance, within bonds, you can extend duration. And by doing so, you actually amp up or magnify the return and risk of that asset class. And if you take the step to essentially equate the risk across different assets, so imagine taking a bond, holding a longer duration form of it, maybe adding a little bit of leverage, you could actually make that bond look very similar to the equity from a return and risk perspective. That is really powerful because you can unlock the diversification that exists between those two assets. You know, you saw that very clearly last year in, uh, in Q1 where equities had a horrific outcome. They were down over 21% where, uh, and the same environment was actually very good for, for bonds because you had a big drop in interest rates and treasuries were actually up above 20%. And so when you held the two, but, th but this required that you held longer duration treasuries, when you held the two alongside one another, you actually got an outcome that was more or less flat uh, because that environment was bad for one and good for the other. And so that, that, that idea of risk parity means you're just holding a diversity of assets at similar risks and returns in a diversified portfolio. It allows you to achieve a much more consistent capture of that risk premium that exists across all assets. Okay, so with that as the background, if we look at the ETF RPAR, this is index-based. Um, walk us through the mechanics. Like, how does this ETF get its exposure to the different asset classes you were mentioning, and, and, and what's the overall investment process? Sure. Um, so the first step is identifying which assets we want to hold. And that really comes down to identifying assets that have reliably different outcomes in different environments. So for example, equities do well when growth is strong or improving 
and they do poorly when growth disappoints or is weakening. Uh, treasuries have uh, the opposite exposure to growth. They do well when growth is weak, and they do poorly when growth is strong, as it is today. Um, we also want to have inflation hedges because both stocks and treasuries do poorly in a rising inflation environment like the 70s. Uh, and so we want to have um, inflation hedges like inflation-linked bonds, uh, which tend to do well in rising inflation environments, commodities, which also do well in rising inflation environments. And by holding essentially those four asset classes, equities, treasuries, tips, and commodities, we can achieve a very balanced outcome to different economic environments. So we're really trying to maximize diversification by thinking about diversifying across economic environments. So that's the first step. Identify assets that are reliably different. Then we design index exposures to each of those asset classes in order to capture uh, you know, the risk premium that's inherent in those assets. And we also want to make an adjustment to the sizing of that exposure such that each has equal risk impact to the portfolio. So the, the very simple allocation that, that actually uh, flows from that objective is you end up with about 25% in global equities, 25% in commodity exposure, 35% in long-duration treasuries and 35% in long-duration tips. And if you do a simple uh, addition of those numbers, you'll find that it, it's a little bit leveraged. So we have about a $1.20 of exposure for every dollar invested in the fund. And that's because the bonds, as I mentioned earlier, have to be um, magnified a bit in order to have similar impact to the portfolio as the equities and commodities, which are inherently riskier asset classes. Is there a maximum amount of leverage you can use on those treasuries as you're adjusting the risk profile? We actually take a much longer-term view of volatility, and so we don't need to make dynamic adjustments to the, the overall sizing of the treasury exposure. So that $1.2 uh, you know, $1 per dollar invested, that's pretty stable over time. It doesn't move around much. If I pull up your your current holdings here, so I see uh, GLDM, the Spider Gold Mini Shares. You also have the Granite Shares Gold ETF, ticker BAR. Mm -hmm. uh, there are several Vanguard ETFs, VTI, VWO, VEA. Of course, there is a sizable allocation to, to Treasury futures and, and tips that you mentioned. Um, can you talk more about this this current positioning? And, you know, again, talking about Treasuries, I know some people may go, I look at the rate environment right now. There, there are concerns over rising rates and, and inflation. Should that be a concern to investors? Um, so just in terms of the, the actual exposures, what we do, and then I'll answer your question about treasuries. What we do in terms of designing this mix is we actually spent about a year creating an index, uh, which the fund tracks, and that's how it's actually implemented. That index, we had the objective of getting low-cost, well-diversified exposure to each underlying asset class. And so, and, and so we went through an exercise where we went out and looked at the available ETFs in the marketplace. And for things like emerging market equities, it made sense to just go out and buy the Vanguard emerging market uh, ETF. Uh, that was the least cost, most efficient way to get that exposure to emerging market equities. However, if you go into other asset classes like like in, in treasury inflation protected securities or tips or treasuries um, or even commodity producer equities, which is a, a component that we um, 
we actually, within the commodities, we have a mix of physical gold, which, as you mentioned, we get through GLDM and, and, uh, and BAR. But we also have a component to industrial uh, commodity producers. So think about miners uh, or energy producers. And there we didn't see it in existing ETF that was cost effective. So we created our own index. So, so that's why when you look inside the ETF, you'll see a mixture of directly held securities where there wasn't a, an existing low cost ETF or index option for us to utilize. And then we also have some Vanguard funds and other funds that were an efficient way to get exposure to global equities, for instance. And so we, in, in those cases, we don't need to hold the underlying exposures on a direct basis. Um, in terms of the treasuries, uh, it's a great question. We get that a lot. Um, the, the key thing to realize with treasuries is that there, we'll always go through environments that are that are negative and favorable for any single asset class. We were actually in a bull market last year in treasuries, and now we're in a bear market. And of course, when you're in a bear market, there's always going to be a narrative around that particular asset class that um, w would make you fearful of holding that asset class. But but that is in the price. You've had um, one of the biggest move upwards in yields we've seen uh, in the last uh, 30 years. Uh, actually, in the last 40 years, I think since 1983, you had the biggest move in Treasury yields in Q1 since 1983. And so there is clearly um, you know, concern about Treasuries in an environment of increasing inflation. Also, you have a lot of supply uh, as a function of what the, uh, the government is doing uh, with regards to the fiscal stimulus. Um, and so there are justifiably some concerns about Treasuries, and you've seen that exhibited in the price. Um, but on a prospective basis, treasuries have a higher yield than they did, significantly higher yield than they did a year ago, you know, almost 100 basis points. And on top of that, um, you've had other assets while treasuries have underperformed that have done very well because the environment that was bad for treasuries was similarly good for equities and commodities. You know, commodities actually are the best returning asset class this year because you've had an environment of rising inflation and rising growth, which is a particularly good um, outcome for industrial commodities. Um, and so, so to answer your question of why, you know, why would you want to hold treasuries in this environment, we want to hold it because we still believe there's a positive risk premium. You can see that an upward sloping yield curve. So you, in other words, you're getting compensated relative to cash. And it is a very reliable hedge. It does very well in the environment when many of the other exposures would do poorly, which, you know, is certainly a possible outcome in the future. We do not know what the future holds. This is the beauty of this approach. You don't have to guess that it's going to be a good or bad environment for any single asset class. You have designed this in, in such a way that you are more or less insulated from big surprises one way or the other, and it allows you to more efficiently capture that positive expected return I referenced earlier that we think exists across asset classes. Um, so I think of treasuries essentially as you know, a downside growth hedge that pays you something along the way because there's a positive expected return. And we still continue to see value in holding that in a portfolio, a diversified portfolio like our park. Damien, dovetailing on some of those comments there, bigger picture, it seems like to me if an investor believes in a risk parity approach, they're somewhat uh, eschewing the traditional 60-40 portfolio concept. Uh, would you agree with that? And, and, and I guess if so, what do you view as some of the shortcomings of a 60-40 allocation? It's not necessarily the case that investors in risk parity don't, don't believe in the 60-40 approach. So, so we have a lot of investors in the fund that utilize it as a diversifier. 
so to complement a 60-40 allocation mm -hmm. because you have a lot of exposures within the RPAR uh, fund that uh, that are not typically held with, within a traditional 60-40. Things like inflation hedges, gold, long-term treasuries, all of those are valuable hedges within a broader investment allocation, even a traditional investment allocation. So uh, you're, you're right that, that people do utilize RPAR as an alternative to 60-40, but I think probably given the acceptance of 60-40, I'd say more investors utilize it as a complement to 60-40 than as a replacement for 60-40. Um, but to your point, we do believe that it is a more efficient way to hold assets long-term than 60-40. And the explanation is actually quite simple. 60-40 is essentially a one-asset portfolio. 60% of the portfolio is in stocks. Stocks are very volatile. 40% of the portfolio is in bonds, and bonds are not very volatile. So if you think about what drives 60-40 day in and day out, it's what's happening to the stock market. In, in essence, it's a a less risky or delevered version of the broader stock market. And, you know, that, that is going to live and die with a single asset class. And this is something I think most investors don't realize, but there are very long periods of time when being an equity investor can be exceptionally painful. So, for example, and this isn't even that long ago, for the decades of the 2000s, you invested in December of 1999 and you held stocks for the full decade. You know, the S&P 500 was negative for a decade. And that is crushing. If you have liabilities or if you're trying to save and you have financial goals, it is crushing to be concentrated in one thing that has a negative return for a decade. And so the real power in our view of a risk parity approach is you can be reasonably confident in never having that lost decade because there will always be an asset class that benefits in that environment that is very tough for equities. So for instance, in the 2000s, the reason why you had such a bad outcome for equities is you started with incredibly optimistic assumptions around growth coming out of the tech bubble, and then you had the slowest rate of growth since the Great Depression. So that adjustment in expectations from incredible optimism to incredible pessimism was painful for stocks. It was actually exceptionally beneficial for bonds. And, um, and actually, commodities actually did pretty well in the, in the 2000s as well. Um, and so by having a diversified allocation that is truly diversified, not just diversified in name, but where you have components that have similar impact and are different from equities, then you can essentially insulate yourself from those really prolonged bad outcomes that any single asset class can experience. Damien, sort of on that note, in only about two minutes left here, I know how well-versed you are on the financial market, so I have to ask you, any strong views right now? I mean, is there anything keeping you up at night? Is everything keeping you up at night? What, what, what do you make of the current environment? Again, with a caveat, we should probably have you back on to do an entire segment on the, uh, on the markets. But in a two-minute nutshell, what, you know, give us a snapshot here. Sure. Um What's interesting, I think, and this was a little bit counterintuitive, is that what the government is doing in terms of stimulating the real economy is actually potentially having an adverse impact on the financial markets. And the reason I say that is because instead of stimulating through asset price uh, support, you know, histor you know, historically they've lowered interest rates and they've, and they've done quantitative easing and that has been their primary means of stimulating, that has 
created a tremendous outcome in terms of the, the appreciation you've seen across all assets over the last decade. Now they've shifted their focus from stimulating asset markets to stimulating the real economy. And somewhat counterintuitively, what that means is it, it, it has the potential to create more inflation pressure. And actually, it has the potential to create financial market tightness in response to that. And so you could actually have an environment here where over the next several months, you have all of this money printing, which then gets um, pushed into the real economy through all of the actions of the Biden administration. And it actually could cause uh, an adverse impact in the in the financial markets, even though you're thinking, you know, that's 30 percent of GDP. That's, I guess, it, you know, it's, it's on the order of 30 percent of GDP that they're, you know, that they're basically pushing into the econ- the real economy that actually has um, knock on Im- impacts for inflation and for uh, potentially you know, rising interest rates and rising real rates, which is a headwind for assets. And you see some of that today, actually, in, in the market action, which I think is a, is a small example of a, of a bigger dynamic that could emerge here. Um, I, I say taking a step back, there are big forces at play, and it's very hard to know how these things are going to net out. Clearly, there's an inflation pulse here with the stimulus in the short term. Over the long term, it's unclear as to whether that can continue. Uh, especially if you have a change in control in the midterm elections. It's unclear how much the Republicans are going to support this ongoing fiscal stimulus. And you have these powerful deflationary forces that are in the background that will continue, things like technology, things like uh, very, very high debt levels. And so we see an outcome here which could be very inflationary or could be deflationary ultimately. Um, And so it's very hard to predict. And again, that speaks to why we think it's so important to be diversified. On the growth side, I think you're going to have a very strong growth outcome this year, but it doesn't necessarily translate into the financial markets, as, as we've talked about. And, and beyond this year, it's unclear after the stimulus has passed if they'll be able to continue to do more of it and what that might mean for, for our currency and, uh, and, and what that might mean uh, as a political, um, from a political perspective as, as you have this wealth redistribution in the country, which I think creates additional uncertainty. Well, Damien, just fantastic perspective. We are going to have to leave it there, but congratulations on all the success you're having with RPAR. And again, hope we can connect again in the future. But thank you for joining me. My pleasure. Thanks for having me. That was Damien Basirier, Managing Partner and Co-Chief Investment Officer at Evoke Advisors. That'll do it for this week's ETF Prime. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Nate Geraci, or you can send comments through ETFprime.com. Next week, I'll be joined by Jim Atkinson, CEO of Guinness Atkinson Asset Management. He was behind the first ever mutual fund to ETF conversions. I I can't wait to talk about that. And then James Davalos, portfolio manager at Horizon Kinetics, is going to spotlight their inflation beneficiaries ETF, which has been a, a huge success since launching in April, already over 400 million in assets. Until then, have a great week, everyone.